and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we get to talk about something that I love to talk about, which is midterm elections. Many people come to the show to hear my opinions and to hear our guest opinions on what's going to happen. And at the end of the day, all we do is guess and we see what happens in November. But today, I have somebody who knows what they're talking about, none other than Joel Payne. How you doing, my brother? Hey, Bakari. Good, for, good, good to be with you. Man, thank you so much. Uh, you listen to the show, so you know we start our show the same way each time, which is a good opportunity for our listeners to learn about who we're speaking with. So um, walk us through the arc of your career, uh, your political career, your first political job to the work you do now, commenting on this and as a political commentator. For sure. Well, uh, like a lot of kids came straight to D.C. out of college about six weeks after my mom helped me pick my first terrible apartment in D.C. Um, and I'm a Jersey kid by birth. And so worked for uh, the late Senator Frank Lautenberg from New Jersey, um, kind of early, your, your typical staff assistant answering phones, giving capital tours job. Um, I'll give you the 25 cent tour, worked for another member of the Senate, um, got a chance to work on the 2008 presidential campaign, uh, was a tracker, which um, if your listeners really want to be put to sleep is probably one of the most interesting jobs in politics. Um, and it's also responsible for my waistline right now. Um, I hate trackers, by the way, a lot of trackers were the bane of my existence. Before. I'm sure, I'm sure. But it's the best front row seat you can get to just politics and just understanding the whole thing, how it works. Um, got a chance to work on Edwards campaign, uh, did some private sector work went to work for Majority Leader Harry Reid in his leadership office during the passage of the Affordable Care Act uh, in the early 2010s. Um, other career highlights include, I got a great opportunity to work for um, uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton, was actually her uh, you know, lead for African-American advertising on the 2016 campaign. So I know some of our conversation will be about Black voters. I'm really interested to talk to you about the lessons I took from that experience and how I apply it here. Um, and just really been all around the place. And I'm fortunate now, actually, along with um, some other consulting work that I do to get a chance to uh, talk to the nation as a part of CBS's, uh, CBS News' political team. I'm a political contributor for CBS News. Um, so I do what you do, Bakari, but uh, I think you probably do it a little bit better and have done it a little, a little bit longer than I have. <laughs> Man, look, I, I tell folks we get paid. Uh, to talk shit like we in a barbershop and make it sound good on TV. I, I love to dress up and, and talk politics. But yeah, for me, this is year seven and I'm going to stay as long as they'll have me. People always ask me, when you get, when, how long are you going to be with CNN? As long as they keep me is how long Amen. I'm going to be there. <laughs> so let's do this. Let's jump right into it. Let's do a roundup of Senate races. I'll start in your neck of the woods. You got people, we just talked about it from Lumberton, North Carolina. I personally think this is a sleeper race. There's no poll that has this race more than one point in favor of Beasley or one point in favor of Bud. This is tight as a tick, as we say down south. We just had Sherry Beasley on the show. I'm bullish on her, um, but the national press and national Democrats tend to treat North Carolina like fool's gold. What's your take on the race in North Carolina? Yeah, I heard that interview you did with Sherry Beasley. She's a phenomenal candidate. And I'm going to start here by talking about I got four C's for all of these races, and I'll weave them in and out of our conversation. The four C's that are important are candidates, they are um, they are cost, they are choice, and they're crime. The C here in North Carolina is candidates, because Democrats got one of the best ones in the field in Sherry Beasley. And North Carolina actually reminds me a lot of Virginia for Republicans, the same way that like Democrats think about North Carolina is the same way that uh, Republicans think about Virginia. 
like North Carolina is a Republican state, but it's not really a red state. You got a Democratic governor. You have an electorate, very highly educated, highly diverse electorate in places like Charlotte and places like Fayetteville and places like the Research Triangle. Um, and when you have a really strong candidate like Sherry Beasley, you've got a chance. This race reminds me a lot of that race from about a decade ago with the late Kay Hagan when she defeated Elizabeth Dole. This feels very similar to that race. And I think choice is going to play an outsized role. A lot of the big women's groups are really heavy um, into this uh, this particular race. I know Emily's list is in big here in North Carolina. And I, I think the people who I talk to on the inside tell me this is a place where Democrats could pull off what nationally will feel like an upset. But to pros like us, I think we know it wouldn't be really that much of an upset. You know, for me, actually, when people talk about races, I'm very nervous about Democrats holding Nevada, which is where we're going to talk about it next. Um, but I do think we hold Arizona. And I think because Sherry Beasley is just a flat out better candidate than Fetterman, I think that North Carolina is probably one. Um, I think Pennsylvania's two, uh, Wisconsin three, Ohio and Florida kind of, you know, four-ish. Um, but you also, I mean, I'm nervous about Nevada. You are a Harry Reid guy. Uh, what's happening in Nevada? And notice how I pronounce it correctly. I got hate mail about pronouncing it wrong in 2016. You got to get that right, brother. You know that. You know Nevada. that. Sure. Yeah, Nevada. So look, here's the thing. Um, I think Catherine Cortez Masto has certainly been, I think um, she, she's done the job. I think she's got a long way to go in order to kind of build the roots in the state, like some of the previous big Democratic names. Of course, my late former boss, Harry Reid, um, I think a big question, there's a couple of big questions. One, the the speed of new voters entering that state. There's so many new voters in the state of Nevada. I think it's like 40% of the, the folks who are eligible to vote are new voters. When you have that, you have a very combustible electorate that, you know, again, pros like us, we don't really know what we're dealing with. Um, a lot of them might be coming from different political backgrounds, the, the ethnic backgrounds. Um, the thing that the Reed machine has always been able to turn on is the big culinary workers union in the state. And I think that's the question right now that, um, you know, Senator Reed belongs to the ages. Can the remnants of his machine get another cycle or two out on reputation? Um, there's some really strong organizers on the ground, many of them who I know and I've had a chance to work with. But I think that's the key question. I will say the the candidates the Republicans are have are rather doo doo all across uh, the, the, the country. I think. Laxalt is probably one of the ones who are least compromised. I certainly don't think he's a, a, a the strongest uh, Republican candidate to ever grace Nevada, but I think he's not as compromised as some of the other Republican candidates around the country. Hmm. So what about Aaron Ford and my, all those down ballot races? I mean, will will they have a chance to to come across the finish line here? It looks really close, but one of the things that I've heard from my colleagues who do the work we do in Nevada is that a lot of Hispanic voters, they're not voting Republican. They just stay at home. They, they, they might be staying home. They, they also like, so one of my C's was cost. So while folks like us, maybe in the East Coast, and I don't know what the gas prices look like uh, in South Carolina where you are, Bakari, but they're probably a, a down a, a dollar and a half in the last two months in the DC area where I live. That has not been felt in the Western part of the country. So in places like Arizona and Nevada and Washington state, where maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that, uh, that Patty Murray race, which we maybe didn't expect to necessarily need to talk about. Um, those I'm not talking about issues, Patty Murray race. And I'm that, not talking about fine. Colorado. Those races that's are fine. not close. 
No, no, no. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. Patty Murray's going to win, but that race is a lot closer than it should be. And mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons it is, is because some of those cost issues in the Western part of the country are really being deeply felt. And in Nevada, you've got some of the highest gas prices in the country. Um, and you've got a, a candidate in CCM, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, who maybe has not necessarily pulled away um, and has nece not necessarily made the case for another term like some other Democrats have across the country. And again, she does not have the advantage of running against one of the worst Republican candidates in the field. Um, but your question about the down ballot and up ballot races, I think is a good one. You got folks like Joe Lombardo who are running. Whether or not Republicans can have enough discipline to not run to the far right, I think is yeah. just as big of an issue because while it might be a natural advantage to Republicans in some of these places, the fact that Republicans can't help themselves with the Trumpism, I think is the only saving grace that some Democrats might have. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. So uh, let's talk about two other seats where we're defending. One, I'm not, well, I'm not worried about either one of them, but Mark Kelly um, in Arizona and Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. They seem to be in a good spot. How much of this is about the other C word, which is candidate and Republicans just running some shitty candidates? Or are they both showing themselves to be better candidates than we have originally thought? Or is it both? Mark, Mark Kelly is one of the best um, candidates that Democrats have. Um, Mark Kelly is the type of person, party aside, who gets elected in Arizona. He's famous. He's got presence. Um, by the way, we might want to talk about that governor's race where uh, Katie Hobbs is, uh, I think, struggling to kind of tread water against uh, Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake is uh, someone who's charismatic. She's got a presence. We don't agree with her politics, but she's an. I think she is probably a much stronger candidate than Blake Masters is in the, in the Senate race against Mark Kelly. Also, you might be interested in this. I think it's interesting. You know, Kristen sends uh, President Biden lots of uh, headaches and side aches uh, from Arizona, and people always talk about how well she has to run a. You know, she has to be competitive in a state like Arizona. Do you know that Mark Kelly and Kristen Cinema beat the same Democrat, Martha McSally? Mark Kelly won by more votes and has not found his way on the on the bad list for President Biden, like Kristen Sinema has, and has actually kind of shown himself to be more of a team player. I, I'm bringing that up because I think there's this thought that like Arizona, you have to you have to kind of blanch to the center or blanch to the far right. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the case. I think Mark Kelly is independent. I think he he disagrees with the president when he needs to. But I think he has been able to keep credibility in that marketplace. Really quickly on New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan, um, she's got an interesting situation there in New Hampshire where she's a former state elected elect official, former governor. Um, I think had Chris Sununu been the Republican that she was running against, as opposed to Don Baldick, I think it's a very different race. And also had the Dobbs decision not happen, I think she would not have a, an issue to run with. I think those things both advantage her tremendously. And I think you're right. I think both of these races, I think most Democrats anticipate holding at the moment. So let's go to fool's goal, Florida and Ohio. I love both of the candidates, but I put Florida and Ohio in the same category as Indiana or Kentucky. Under optimal circumstances, a Democrat, quote unquote, could win, but it's becoming virtually more and more impossible. And Florida's races have become instead of you know half a point here or there they're now three-point races which in florida is the damn near lamps a landslide is there any other reason to believe that we will see upsets with val demings or tim ryan and 
How could they crack the code in these states? The same smart people who told me that Sherry Beasley is in a surprisingly to some uh, advantageous position in North Carolina have told me, don't be surprised if Tim Ryan, uh, Tim Ryan um, really gives J.D. Vance a hard time. One, because he's running like a Sherrod Brown Democrat in Ohio. You have to run like that in order to win as a Democrat in Ohio. Also, I think there's a, a possibility of a lot of ticket splitting between Mike DeWine, the Republican governor in Ohio, and J.D. Vance, because J.D. Vance is basically not running a race. He's not competitive. He's he's not present on a campaign trail. All he's doing is a couple of Trump rallies. And Mike DeWine is in a very comfortable position for reelection, got a lot of money. And I think one of the big strategic questions on the Republican side is, is DeWine going to help Vance? If he doesn't, that thing could be a toss up. And I would put that right behind North Carolina as like a second kind of national surprise race that you could see. Um, so I would put a big watch out for Ohio. It's, it is trended red the last couple of cycles, um, but you can win as a Sherrod Brown Democrat in Ohio. And I think Tim, is, Tim Ryan is running as such. Really quickly about Florida, you and I know have great personal admiration for Chief Val Demings. And I'm saying Chief Demings because they are running very purposely with that label for her. I think Marco Rubio sometimes does not seem like he actually wants to be in the Senate. And I think that is a thing that's probably going to make that race more competitive. I think it's all about how much do you make Republicans work for it in Florida? How much do they have to spend? How much time do they have to spend there? How many big time surrogates do they have to put in the state? If they have to waste a lot of resources in Florida, that makes the map a lot more palatable all across the country for Democrats. If not, um, if you look at DeSantis building up a eight, nine, 10 point spread, I, I, I actually think um, that works in Republicans' favor. I think making Republicans work for it in Florida is the game right now. So uh, the race that I really didn't want to talk about because I thought it would be you know, game said match, but it's closer than we all would have ever imagined is Raphael Warnock in Georgia. I think he wins and I think he benefits from what could be one of the worst Senate candidates in the history of the United States Senate in Herschel Walker. Is Georgia keeping you up at night like it is me? And do you think we'll start to see more daylight between Warnock and Walker as it gets closer? My biggest fear is that Stacey loses by five, six points. And that makes it even more difficult for Warnock to pull this off. Yeah, a couple of things to consider there. One, does that become a runoff? If that becomes a runoff, you nationalize it. You can essentially have the same phenomena you had two years ago where Democrats were all in on Georgia because everything rode on Georgia. That actually ended up being advantageous for Democrats last time around. So if Warnock can force it to a runoff, I actually think that's probably preferable than just trying to win it on election day because I think Brian Kemp right now is running a much stronger race against Stacey Abrams. And I think most prognosticators think that Brian Kemp is gonna probably fairly comfortably get to reelection. I don't think that's any shade at Stacey Abrams. Um, I do think that occasionally, um, sometimes the dynamics of a state just don't work in favor of a candidate. I think she's an excellent candidate who might run a race similar to Beto or Rourke did in Texas four years ago, where he ran a great race and fought Ted Cruz to a three-point loss, right? I think you can see the same phenomenon in Georgia with Stacey Abrams. But just focusing on this Warnock-Walker race for a second. Look, you and I are two Black men who have roots in the South. You have deep, slightly deeper roots in the South, I think, right now. There's a lot of Herschels that maybe nationally people don't think about when they think about the black vote that's out there there's a lot of people who look at the world and who view the world like herschel walker and i'm talking about people who look like me and you who are black men 
And I think that there is a real crisis right now in certain parts of the country about the black male vote. One of the things on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 I learned is that the less educated, the younger and the more male you got with the black vote, the more unpredictable it became. I'm not talking about Herschel Walker winning 50% of the black vote. I'm talking if he can win 25%, if he can win 27%, that is enough to break the dam against Warnock. He doesn't, the margins don't have to be so extended. And I think that is the real concern for a lot of Democrats. I'm sure Democrats in that state, but also Democrats nationally. But there's a there are a lot of people like Herschel Walker. Also, Bakari, I'm sure you've noticed this strategically. Walker, I go to barbershops barber with people like Herschel Walker every day. That, that's right. But strategically, he has embraced, I'm just a dumb country boy. He said that on the trail about five times in the last three weeks. And I think he's actually got some smart national Republicans who understand that most Republicans in that state view him as a proxy vote for Donald Trump, right? So if you can get people to think, hey, Herschel Walker, I don't really care if he's the smartest, the, the sharpest tool in the tool shed, if he's just gonna go and vote for the things I believe in culturally, that's all I care about. He's gonna be a, a rubber stamp for McConnell and Trump. Well, which, which you know, I know that's a little complicated, but you get my point. Um, I think that is the same stamp, but I get your point. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So, so I, so I actually think it's super complicated. And by the way, this is nothing about Raphael Warnock as a candidate. I think he's running a damn good race. I think Raphael been- Warnock's running a brilliant race as a black man in the South watching it. I mean, I, I like to say that I was a part of this effort to chip away at the glass down South in 2014 when I ran. And then you had Andrew and Stacey run and you had Jamie Harrison. And finally, Raphael broke the glass and he's running a hell of a race. This climate is just so interesting. And Herschel he's stronger. He's stronger with independence. He's actually competitive with independence in a way that might take him over the top with a Warnock. But he's fighting a strong candidate at the top of the ticket. And, and that's the challenge right now. Is Kemp going to pull Walker across the top with him? So does Fetterman make up ground with black voters in general in, in Pennsylvania? And what's your assessment of this race? Given Democrats seem to be missing a moment in Philadelphia or excuse me, in Pennsylvania right now. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, the lack of campaigning by Fetterman and his fragile relationship with the black community. Well, I think you I don't know if that was a Freudian slip, but you just said it uh, campaigning in Philadelphia. Right. Because, look, he, it seems like he's got the western part of the state on lock. And I, and I will say this in terms of kind of economic populist, you know, kind of, you know, bland. Uh, uh, blushing at, at white voters who are economically conflicted. I think John Fetterman has done about as strong of a job as any candidate in the last couple of cycles. But to win as a Democrat in Pennsylvania, you have to make sure that you bring that black coalition together. And I think he's got a complicated relationship with there and that's putting it generously. Um, people are focused on the health issue. And look, it is no small thing to have a, a candidate um, in a state like this having a major health event what, 90 days before the election, right? I, I totally get why that's a big deal. But but the people I talk to and the focus groups I look at, that's actually not what's moving voters. What's moving voters in the state is crime. And I think that's actually probably why strategically you're not seeing Fetterman do the, the kind of outward public embrace of Black voters because Republicans are scaring up, you know, Republican voters and independent voters on the issue of crime. We might talk about Wisconsin. I think it's happening to Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin as well. They're spending a lot of money. They are putting out a lot of ads that have kind of, uh, you know, obviously do not put him in the best light and and, and is unfair, um, You just, just flat out. But they understand that crime is a big driver. I think that's one of the more underplayed 
factors in all of these races coming up to the midterms is crime. Um, a lot of independent suburban voters are scared and Republicans understand how to how to turn out their universe by scaring them with crime. And I think we're seeing that phenomenon in Pennsylvania. Oz is a pretty not impressive candidate, but oh, again, people- I mean, I don't, I mean where are these guys are. when I'm running for office? Why can't I run against Herschel Walker or Mehmet Oz? I mean, these guys are terrible candidates or Blake Mass. And, and, and I will say this about the Fetterman folks. They did about, they went to work on Oz over the summer when their candidate was down, when their candidate was recovering about as well as I've seen pretty much any campaign do in a summer period where their candidate essentially had to be off the trail for two months. They made this to a New Jersey and I'm a Jersey guy and, and it worked on me. They, they, they made this guy into somebody who was not of the Commonwealth, right? And that's really all you want to try to do is create enough doubt that he's one of us. And so I think my sense is that Fetterman probably still is, if you're a prognosticator, still in the lead. But I think if he loses his grip on the lead, I don't think it's going to be his health. I think it's going to be crime. Crime is, is a weird Willie Lynch style. I mean, but it's an issue. I mean, it-, it Oh, it's, it's look, and I want to be clear. I'm just giving you my, my no, view I mean, of it. Let me ask you this question as succinctly as I can. Can a black man named Mandela be in a United States Senate from Wisconsin? I think for those who know the state of Wisconsin, there's a big black vote to be it's tapped in. A lot of black folks. People don't realize that, that you ain't got to just go to CBC events for Gwen Moore to understand there's a lot of black folks in, in Wisconsin. I've spent a lot of time up there just in my career and just having some kind of personal dealings up there. And I'll tell you, and whether it's in Racine or obviously Milwaukee or other parts of the state, there's big black populations. What happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016 is she couldn't turn out that black vote in 2016. And I think Mandela Barnes has the same challenge here. I do think there is a little bit of a disconnect between Barnes and black voters. I think he might be dealing with the same challenge that we just talked about with Fetterman, that if you're <coughs> that community too close, you are viewed as somebody who is, who is not of the center on issues like crime and on public safety. So I think, and, and he has a particular complicated challenge with that because he's a black man. So yeah. I think he might be dealing with the same phenomenon that Fetterman is dealing with, but he's got to unify that black coalition. If he can do that, there are enough votes in that state for him to win. I think Tony Evers is going to win. And I think there's the, the what he has to watch out for is too many split Evers Johnson voters because Ron Johnson has skated politically like someone who I, I've, I've, I really have rarely seen somebody, okay, who has had the fraught political career of Ron Johnson have so much success. Um, and he might be looking at another third re-election here, um, which would be pretty surprising given um, given how unfavorably he's viewed in that state. Two last questions. What gubernatorial races are you watching? So obviously in Pennsylvania, I think that that race at the top of the ticket, Josh Shapiro and Doug Mastriano. That's um, a great race by Shapiro. Shapiro's running a hell of a race. Running a good race. And also it just seems like the national Republicans, I mean, Pat Toomey won't even say Doug Mastriano's name. He's the big Republican senator, senator in the state, and he won't even utter the guy's name. So I think that is a tremendous kind of race to watch. Um, probably look looking ahead a little bit to 2024, because all of these governor's races, I think, are much more about 24, because in an era where you've got Republicans who are being very bold about, hey, we're going to discount votes, we're going to restrict access to the vote, that happens at the state level. Um, in, in almost every case. And so people who are administrating 
the elections and administering government at the state level are the folks that you want to watch. I guess the other big race we talked about a little bit from a governor's perspective is out in Arizona, where that is all about 2020. It's the one place where maybe, and it's it's awkward because it's not going to work in the Mark Kelly race, I don't think, but it might work in that governor's race with Kari Lake, where she may be able to run an entire race uh, on grievance on 2020 and may, may be able to kind of ride that to victory. She's probably being helped also by a Democratic candidate who I don't want to talk bad about anybody, but has not necessarily um, distinguished herself so far. She's got time to to get it together. So, yeah, lots, lots, uh, lots out there. Shout but out but those our, governor's races are key for 24. Shout out to our friend Wes Moore, who's skating to victory. Um, I'm a, as someone who currently lives in Maryland. Yeah, he's. And, and look, by the way, there was a lot of concern and conversation about Democrats putting money into some of these MAGA candidates to kind of get more favorable races and more independent, more Republican candidate to go against. But Russ Moore's up by something like 30 percent percentage points. One of the things that we're seeing, particularly with the Stacey Abrams race, that jumps out a little bit, but uh, Democrats as a whole struggling with black men. What in, in your wisdom, if you got a chance to sit down with all the the alphabets, the DSCC, the DNC, the DCCC, all of the alphabets, DGA. Um, what do you tell them about reaching black men who are an integral part of the electorate? But if we stay home, we don't win. Bakar, you got to win these votes. You can't treat these folks as turnout universes, meaning you can't just call them up six weeks before election day, tell them where the polling location is and, and tell them when early vote starts. You got to be talking to these voters, these potential voters, it's after the previous election day, and you got to have a continuous conversation with them. And that requires heavy investment. And I know people like the great Donna Brazil, the great Mignon Moore, yourself, others have been pushing from a kind of a more consistent thread of conversation in some of those spaces. We've got to get the people who are the decision makers and who control the purse strings on the Democratic side to more regularly be in conversation with these voters. Because here's the dirty secret about Trumpism in 2016 and beyond, that tapped into the kind of innate feeling that a lot of black male, less educated, younger voters had because they don't trust anybody in the system. They don't believe that anybody in Washington is there to serve their interests. They think everybody's corrupt. It sound, what does that sound like? That sounds like Trumpism to you, right? Kind of sounds like Bernie Sanders and Trumpism kind of come, come to a head. And I also think that these are communities where they have consistently had broken promises. If you've campaigned on reducing student loan debt and you take forever to do it and then you do half a loaf. If you've campaigned on, you know, kind of creating jobs or creating opportunities in some of these spaces then after the election, you forget about it. You can't just treat these folks as a turnout universe. You got to be there 365 days a right. year, all four years of a cycle. Yeah, we're, we're just now learning how to do that. Uh, Joel, I'm going to bring you back. I think we'll do an election special. If you're not on TV, we want to we want you to join us. I thoroughly enjoyed this and your knowledge is impeccable. Your insight. I actually agree with, I think, everything you said today. So thank you as a first time guest. Thank you for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast. Appreciate you having me. Good to be with you.